Have you ever wondered how to square feminism with Catholicism? Or been part of trying to find a good side of feminism to praise and try to distinguish it from bad pro-abortion feminism? Don't you wish there was a different way of speaking about women, the role of women in culture? Well, there is a fascinating conceptualization of this in a book called The Anti-Mary Exposed, Rescuing the Culture from Toxic Femininity. When the, book, when the book first came out a couple of years ago, I missed it. But there was a recent controversy over the book which sparked interest because the book just recently became a target of cancel culture. We have with us today the author of the intriguing and apparently very controversial book, Dr. Carrie Gress. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. <music> Dr. Carrie Grass, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me today. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In the intro, I mentioned how your book, already a couple years old, but a book that's very controversial indeed, especially right after the Biden inauguration, has been the subject of some cancel culture. Uh, the book is called The Anti-Mary Exposed, Rescuing the Culture from Toxic Femininity. We're going to get into all of that. But first of all, tell us about this canceling of your book right after the uh, Biden inauguration. Yeah, well, it was a Sunday afternoon right after the inauguration. And I got a notification from a bookseller that, that informed me that they couldn't post the book online to sell it. And they, they had before, they couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, they thought it was censorship and, um, you know, I was sort of hesitant. I was like, what's going on? Cause they got a message saying it was, um, it didn't fit with community standards or whatever. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's a two-year-old book. So I thought, well, maybe it's a glitch. I'm not sure. Um, and then they tried to post it to Instagram and got the exact same message. So I thought, okay, they're, they're obviously owned by the same people. There's so something systemic going on here. You know, I put it on Facebook and on Instagram that this was happening and people just were incredibly supportive and um, went out and bought the book. It shot up to 242 on Amazon's list. And um, it was number one in feminist theory, which was, it's always so gratifying to see it anywhere near the top of feminist theory, because it's sitting next to books called I Hate Men and, you know, all these just awful books. Um, so anyway, that, um, then Amazon sold out of it and um, they actually stopped selling it, you know, those buttons that they have where that, you know, you can, it's, you can still purchase it and it says will be available, you know, on May 13th or whatever. Um, that was just taken down. So you could only buy it from a third party seller, even though we know the publisher had already received an order for them. And we kept saying, can you put these back up? And so Amazon would put the buttons back up and then they would come back down again, you know, within an hour. Um, so the book, the book just plateaued at 242 and couldn't go any higher at that point because you, you know, you're not going to get ratings or rankings if for a book that's not selling. So anyway, it was really interesting to see how that played out. So you've got, you know, a two-year-old book. It's the week Biden is inaugurated and it's a book on toxic femininity. Um, so it was kind of this, this perfect storm of a book to be targeted. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll see how it, it goes from here on out. Amazon has, has since put the buttons back, you know, the week later. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's still for sale there, unlike others. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it plays out over the, the coming year for sure. 
Well, the great part about all that is that it must be something to be revisited. So the good Lord uh, sees to foil the plans of the evil one. And, you know, the powers that be at Amazon might not like a lot of things. And I think felt really empowered uh, with the Biden administration coming in. Uh, that's when we started getting warnings about our YouTube channel. And then we're eventually kicked off completely. Uh, Facebook cracking down on us, everything else. So let's examine the book. I love the concept. The title is amazing. The concept of the anti-Mary being really toxic, toxic feminism today. So tell us about the concept. Well, it actually came to me when I was writing my book, The, the Marian Option. And um, I was looking, it was actually during the election for um, Hillary Clinton against Trump. And I was looking at Hillary Clinton and looking at how powerful of a woman she was going to be in the culture but simultaneously, I'm reading about Our Lady and how she, you know, even National Geographic has called her the most powerful woman in the world. Um, and I thought, you know, these two things do not look the same. You know, there's something very, very different about Hillary Clinton than about Our Lady. And not, you know, it's not just that Hillary's sort of slightly different, but she's everything that she stands for is diametrically opposed to who Our Lady is. And so that got me really thinking about the culture and seeing just the direction that women had had gone in. So I have a chapter in that book called Are We Living in the Age of Mary or the Anti-Mary? And from there, the publisher said, you know, can you just do a book on this topic? And I thought, sure, I can try. And so, you know, we signed the contract and then I sort of panicked, like, I hope there's enough information. Like, what if I'm just grasping at straws here? And then I got started on the research and it was like a fire hose of information. It was just amazing how overwhelmed I was, you know, and it's one of these things, a friend of mine that, that read the book early on, right after it was published said, you know, you can't unsee the anti-Mary. Once you sort of see it in the culture, it's just so obvious and so, so evident. And, you know, that's what I found in my research was just to see, you know, how many awful things and awful representations and distortions of womanhood there are out there that we're being sold day in and day out and being told this is really what womanhood is, is, is all about. So that was really the the idea behind it. And, um, you know, it just be, ended up becoming uh, a whole book, obviously, but the, the first half really focuses on this idea of the anti-Mary. And then the second half looks at who Our Lady is and why we have great hope um, in her and why she should be this model of femininity for, for all women. So what are some of the ways um, you suggest to fight sort of the anti-Mary culture that we're experiencing today? You know, it seems like every time I write a book, it leads to another book. Um, and I've been kind of amazed at how, you know, one response that we could have is to really re re try and retaliate. And I think that um, what ends up happening there is we get, we get angry and we end up looking a lot more like the anti-Mary than like Our Lady. And I've also was intrigued by the fact that I saw um, just how the culture was taken down. You have things like magazines, you've got Oprah Winfrey, you've got all of these very saccharine, lovely magazines and fashion and, you know, all these things that women love. And yet all of them were just laced with Marxism or with just, you know, distortions of sexuality or with the occult. And that's how the culture has been. Like, they seem very innocuous. But if you look at, at the layers there, even Cosmo magazine was really set up to be just the, the female version of Playboy. Um, these are the ways in which women have really been, you know, confused and deluded and, and led astray. Um, and I, I, it's, it's interesting to even see, you know, they're not reading Marx or they're not reading Margaret Sanger, but these are the ideas that we have sort of picked up through, um, the ether of the culture. 
Um, so that's really led me to do this work with Theology of Home. Um, I've published two books now. We're working on a third uh, on Theology of Home because we're using beautiful visuals and we're using our ideas. We're using Catholic ideas to help women absorb these in the same way that we absorb the bad ideas, but in a way that's beautiful and compelling. Because I think a few people know that what Catholic women have, you know, we're, we're, we're said to be the most happy women on the planet. Um, and women really want what we have. We have, you know, faithful husbands. We, we know how we have families. We know how to deal with stress and, and deal with when, you know, crosses and turmoil in our lives. And this is what the culture doesn't know. So I, we always joke about how, you know, in these books, we're putting up pictures of, you know, illicit pictures of, you know, men that really look like men and are good dads and big families and pregnant women, you know, all these things that aren't supposed to be represented in the culture, because, uh, you know, if you look at any commercial today, it's, it's with a man and it usually he's an idiot that the woman has to come along and sort of help him, you know, diaper a baby or clean a kitchen or something. Um, so anyway, we wanted to really just represent truth, beauty, and, and goodness, um, but in a way that's very absorbable uh, by women in a way that we're used to absorbing content. I should just do one clarification for people. You're not saying that men should never help in the kitchen or should never help change a diaper. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> no, but I, I think that's the thing is that they're absolutely competent. You know, I have a husband who, you know, is a much better cook than I am. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my kids are happy when he cooks <laughs> when I don't. Um, so, no, absolutely. I think that there's um, room for all of that, but, I, but, um, that this is the way that we've been portrayed is as, you know, men are idiots because men are the enemy, really. That's, that's, um, this lie that men are our enemy and that the patriarchy is bad. And then the other lie of course, is that the women that don't agree with these women, um, they're, they must be doormats. Um, and so we just wanted to show the opposite of that, something very, very beautiful that also fits in line with, of course, who our lady is as a model of service and, and humility and, motherhood. Um, I think those are important elements that aren't, aren't out there. Now you have a fascinating account in your book about the way some of this came to be about a meeting of feminists together. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I interviewed Mallory Millett. Mallory Millett is the sister of the late Kate Millett. Um, Mallory had been writing about her sister since her death and really trying to get Kate's story out because uh, she felt a lot of guilt because she had been involved in Kate's life early on um, and been kind of a follower of Kate's. And she actually helped name her book Sexual Politics. And Sexual Politics landed Kate on the front of Time magazine. Um, it just made her incredibly famous. But it also was sort of the backbone of all the, the women's studies programs that are now in universities. So uh, Mallory's had this huge conversion and was really trying to, to get the truth out about her sister, Catherine, Kate. Um, so she recounts back in the day when they were all living in New York that Kate would host these events um, or they'd be in someone's one of her friend's apartments, um, 12 women sort of chanting this Marxist litany. Kate Mallard grew up in a Catholic home, so, so Kate knew what she was doing, both with a number of 12 women, um, but also with this litany. And this litany was really part of this, you know, Maoist consciousness raising, very Marxist ideas um, of how do we destroy the culture and you know, I don't know if you have it there in front of you, if it's easier for you to read it, but or I can just describe the gist of it. Ultimately, the, the what was behind their effort was to certainly destroy the American family, to destroy men, to destroy the patriarchy, um, to and to destroy all of these things that that were valued in the culture at that point. And they did it through 
promoting promiscuity, homosexuality, prostitution, uh, you know, all of these things that at that stage were really not mainstream. Um, and you read this final line of their litany, and it's just amazing to see how successful they have been mm-hmm. in destroying all this. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to even think about how um, even just last week, Madonna, Madonna was um, put something up on Twitter, something like death to the patriarchy. <laughs> Um, you know, Madonna is worth $850 million and somehow is blaming her, her, you know, lack of success on men somehow. But it's just fascinating how successful these 12 women were in spreading out this idea that the patriarchy is bad. And so it's now just shorthand, you know, any woman can complain about the patriarchy and somehow everybody's like, oh, well, she's right. Or, you know, it goes unqu- completely unquestioned 50 years out um, from that event. So it's really amazing to see just how successful these these twelve women were, um, because of course they went on to to again form um, these women's studies programs. They were all involved in now and NARAL and you know all these uh, different ways that have have destroyed the culture. So it's very sad. Um, but Mallory, on a different note, was because she was so helpful. Um, at one point, we were talking about the title of the book, and she said you've got to put toxic femininity in it. Um, so it's pretty amazing to see her go from, you know, 50 years ago, naming her sister's book to, you know, almost 50 years to the day, helping me name my book. I know that she was really felt like that was an incredible, uh, you know, grace that, that God showed her how much she's transformed um, who she was at that time. So wow. anyway, but yeah, very sad roots. And of course there was a an occult element to it as well. This wasn't just, you know, Marxism, but there was also very much an involvement in the occult in these women and um, a desire to just erase men altogether um, to really see lesbianism as the pinnacle of creation or, you know, that was the goal to be aimed towards. So um, yeah, it's very sad uh, realities in, in these lives, especially because most of them had major issues with their own parents, um, especially their mothers, uh, you can kind of see this across the board. There was a book that came out shortly before I published mine that was so insightful in this. Um, and I don't think it was meant to be insightful in, in the way that I was using it, um, but it was just re- really revealing as to how broken these women were. You're writing a book about traditional motherhood, about the value of motherhood of women in the traditional sense. People are going to think, oh my gosh, she's the throwback to the old ages. I want them to get to know a little bit about Carrie Gress. Who is Carrie Gress and why would you write such a thing? You know, it's funny because I, I think that is the reaction because we've been conditioned to think that that's the reaction, that if you're not with the culture today, then you must want things to go back to the 1950s. And, you know, I look at the 1950s and I say, oh, the 1950s had to have some serious, maybe they had this veneer of looking lovely. Um, but there were some serious pieces missing because you wouldn't have had the 60s be such a disaster if the family had been in better tact, if the faith had been in better tact, if people knew their faith better. So I'm never really advocating for going back to to that model. But I, yeah, I grew up um, in Oregon, actually, um, very liberal state. And um, I, I think in many ways, it probably just turned me off because I saw the way people's lives were destroyed by rampant drug abuse and, you know, just living without God. Um, and so then I had this, this deep conversion, my father passed away and I, you know, I asked all kinds of questions as a teenager trying to figure out what, like reconciling his death and who I was and all these questions. And ultimately was really answered by the church and just led me in this incredible journey to um, find the faith and the truth of it and come to know our lady and all of that. Um, 
But in the meantime, I was also, I just started studying philosophy. So I ended up finishing a, a doctorate in philosophy at Catholic University. Um, actually finished it after my third child was born. Um, I, I worked on it in labor and delivery because I, I was told I wasn't going to finish it. So I was like, I'm going to finish it. <laughs> I don't care how it gets done. And um, so I finally finished it after the, my, my third child was, was born. But um, I've also lived in Poland and in Rome, um, working as a journalist and doing all kinds of different things. I lived in France. Um, I lived in Washington, D.C. and, and um, was actually George Weigel's assistant for three years. And um, so anyway, it's been just an amazing life. And then finally, I met my husband. Um, we were both older when we got married, and we've been blessed with five children. But um, yeah, I don't think that we really fit the 1950s model at all, because, you know, we're both 100% all the time between all the things that we're doing and just, you know, caring for our children. And, uh, you know, I certainly couldn't do it without him. He's an amazing man. And um, yeah, it's, it's both of us working really hard together to, to do the things that we've done as a family and, and professionally and otherwise. Awesome. And on a final note, Carrie, let me just ask you about Our Lady, um, specifically your, your relationship with Our Lady and how she's helped in your life and how she, how you feel she might help today's woman. This is a very long, I could talk about this probably for about two hours, so I'll try and keep it somewhat brief, but um, you know, the first thing that I, I struggled with in terms of talking about Our Lady is that she seems really inaccessible to a lot of women. Um, we, we can think of her as just a statue or very pious and, and, you know, she's perfect. So how do you relate to the perfect woman? And so I, w- I went back to look at what are the desires of every woman's heart and every woman um, desires to be known and loved. She desires to do the good and she di- desires to be beautiful. Um, and certainly these things can be, become distorted. They can be used in the wrong ways. Um, even these women that you, you know, you look at radical feminism and you see what these women were doing, they thought that they were actually doing very good things. Um, so, but you can see this desire to, to do the good deep in them. It just was obviously very misguided and distorted. Um, and beauty is the same way. Um, that's been turned more twisted into a kind of control and manipulation with our sexuality or vanity. And yet Our Lady has all of those factors. Um, we can see that she's got this desire to be known and love, but it's completely fulfilled because she knows the father. Um, she's, she's loved by him. Um, and that's where everything else flows out of that. So her goodness, of course, is, is perfect goodness because it's in accord with God's will. Um, and her beauty is amazing. In fact, this was one of the fun things, even when I was researching the Marian option, was just to see how much people spoke about her beauty. You know, this isn't a, an accidental attribute that she has, but it's very specific and very important. Um, and this is why I believe women are, are made beautiful. She's beautiful so that she can show others what God looks like, to show God's beauty. Um, St. Therese has this great quote about how Our Lady is so beautiful that you would want to die just so you could see her again. Um, and every apparition, it was always the, the person that saw her said, she was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Um, so that beauty, I, I think, is such a great idea for us to understand the kind of beauty that, that we're meant to to cultivate and, and called to live and, and, and show others. Um, but it was really funny because of course I wrote my book and I, I got to turn into the publisher and then I went on a trip with my family and I had never watched the Hallmark channel before in my life, but somebody said, Oh, watch the Hallmark channel. It's pretty good. And this is before they went woke, but I watched a couple of show- movies with my daughters. We were in a hotel room after a couple of episodes. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> These are the three things that are surround every Hallmark movie, you know, this desire to be known and loved, some desire to do the good, you know, it's some woman going home and saving a library or something. 
and to be beautiful. I mean, she's beautiful while she's doing it and the man that is entranced by her beauty and, you know, all of that. So it just really struck me that, you know, this is why Hallmark Channel is so popular because they've tapped into this idea. Um, but ultimately it comes back to who Our Lady is because she's the only one that can do all of those things in the right way because of her her connection with God. So anyway, that's sort of the abstract um, understanding of, of, I think that we, uh, why Our Lady can apply to all of our lives. But you know, on a personal level, I think um, I had a devotion to Our Lady for a very, very long time. I was always intrigued by um, Lourdes and, and other place, apparition sites. Um, but certainly my, I, my deep understanding of her love for her children did not happen until I had my own kids. I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom that. Um, and so that's been a great grace to really understand the way that she loves us and the way that she sacrifices for us. Um, and I think, though, that every woman is called to spiritual motherhood. Um, this isn't just for those of us that have, have children. But we all have this capacity um, to love others, to hold others, to be able to transform them through our love. And this is what we see with, you know, with, even within our bodies, where we are meant to carry things. Um, you can see this in, you know, references to Our Lady. She's a vessel. She's the ark. Um, you know, all of these things. It's even the, the, the church is a she. Um, the, the main part of the church, the nave, actually refers to navy or ship. Um, this idea of caring. So anyway, it's been really fun to sort of start looking at, we've spent so much time trying to figure out how women can be like men that I've been trying to go back and help women see there's the whole nother side of femininity that we don't even understand anymore because we've been ignoring it. So I've been diving into that a lot. And certainly our lady has been incredibly instrumental in, in understanding that just because there's so much that's been written about her over, over the centuries. Carrie Gress, thank you so much for being with us on this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And I would encourage all of you to please go out and get the book and read it. The name of the book is The Anti-Mary Exposed, Rescuing the Culture from Toxic Femininity. Please go out and get it. Let's read it. It's an awesome book, and there's much, much in there that we haven't covered yet. God bless you, Carrie, and God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we're communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to LifeSiteNews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, 
I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.